0: and uh, we're so glad to have you here this morning as we prepare for the preaching of God's Word. Uh, A few months ago, I heard an interview uh, about an author, it was of an author actually, by the name of Sebastian Younger, and it was about a book that he had written called Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging. And the book was inspired by some observations that he had made after the 9-11 terrorist events. And what he learned as he followed that tragedy is that for two years following the events, there were no mass shootings of any kind in the United States. And that in New York City, there was an immediate drop in the rate of violent crime and what he described as psychiatric disturbances. Now, his theory was that the tragedy and the war that followed inspired virtues of courage, loyalty, and self-sacrifice. And in his words, he said that that can be an utterly intoxicating experience for people who experience those virtues. And then uh, the thesis of his book uh, captured in, is captured in these two sentences. Human beings need three basic things in order to be content. They need to feel, feel competent at what they do. They need to feel authentic in their lives and they need to feel connected with others. These values are considered intrinsic to human happiness and far outweigh extrinsic values such as beauty, money, and status. Now, it's always fascinating to me when those approaching life and their view of life from a secular perspective observe in humanity that which the Bible makes very, very clear. Um, The first thing we, we notice is that we were created... By God, for relationships, that this is the idea that we, we need to feel connected with others in order to be whole. God actually designed that into the fibers of our being. Uh, the second thing, you know, what, what Younger described as the feeling of intoxication uh, that comes from the virtues of self-sacrifice and loyalty and courage. It also taps into this biblical understanding of true love. Jesus, he, he gave us this ultimate picture of, of, of love, right? When he, when he laid down his life on the cross for you and me. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends, John 15, 13. Now, the good news uh, in all of this is that true brotherly love, okay, true self-sacrifice and loyalty, it does not require tragedy or war, And according to today's passage in 1 Peter that we're going to be looking at, there is this source of power, this great truth that's at the heart of our Christian worship, and that this truth is both the fuel for what we know as salvation from sin that we've been talking about throughout the service, but it's also the means by which true brotherly love is to be expressed. And what's this truth? It's it's this gospel truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so... Uh, I want to invite you. if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn. If you want to turn on a smart Bible or an app, go for it. Um, we're going to be starting right at First 1 Peter 122, all the way through 2 three. And so uh, this is the reading of God's word from First 1 Peter 122. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. and envy and all slander, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that this journey today would be a journey of discovery, a journey of revelation, really, how you've revealed yourself through your word in Beautiful and dynamic ways that give us a glimpse into the eternal principles and truths that you've left for us in your word. Lord, and I just pray today that as we wrestle with these words, that you would bring deep meaning beyond just an intellectual understanding, Lord. Deep meaning that applies to our hearts. Meaning that will change us forever. Lord, and so open your word and by your spirit speak that word into us today we pray in Jesus name amen now up to this point in our series in 1st Peter we've seen how Peter was really focusing in with his audience helping them to understand what it is that Jesus did for us on the cross and who it is that we are because of that and then over the last few weeks what we've seen is a little bit of a turn as 1st Peter i'm sorry as Peter begins to help us to explore the essence of ultimately, this Christian identity, but how it translates into the decisions we make and how we live. And we're going to see that exact same pattern here. Look at verse 22 again. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, in order to understand what Peter's saying here, we have to look at it through the lenses of a Jewish believer 2,000 years ago. Because Peter, it, throughout this entire letter, he uses a lot of language that would have certainly made sense to the original audience. But to us, it's not always totally clear. Now, on several occasions, I've had the opportunity to speak uh, or to give a message or a teaching through a translator. Okay, I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but I think through both a Chinese translator as well as uh, Hispanic. And, and one thing that you learn very quickly when working with a translator is the importance of removing phrases that are only understood by a North American audience. Okay? And so, for example, if I told you I had a light bulb moment, you would all understand what I mean, right? That I'm referring to something that was previously unclear becoming clear. It was a light bulb moment. But if a translator, for example, to a Chinese audience, heard that statement and translated it directly, It would probably sound like I'd spent a period of time with a light bulb, right? It wouldn't make any sense at all. And there are a few examples of this same kind of confusion that can come at times when we look at Bible passages. And so you see a little of this at verse 22. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. At first reading, we might think by obeying truth, our souls are purified. Well, that doesn't really measure up with what we understand of the gospel. So, so what does it mean? What is Peter getting at? What's the deeper understanding? And so the first question that we need to answer is, what does Peter mean by truth? Now, if we look throughout the New Testament, we see that most references to truth are referring to something very specific. For example, Jesus in John eight thirty two, speaking to some Jews, he said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, later in that section, in verse 36, he clarified this truth to which he was speaking was to being set free from sin by the Son, meaning Jesus himself, the Son of God. Okay, so that, that specific truth, it's, it's, it's about salvation in Christ. We see the same thing mentioned in Ephesians 1.13 where Paul writes to the church, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So what's this truth? Right? It's the good news of salvation found in Jesus Christ. So Peter is speaking of the gospel. But what does it mean when Peter says to obey this truth? Okay? What does it mean to obey the gospel? Well, we get an answer from Romans 10, 16, and 17. Because uh, Paul describes unbelievers with, this, with these words. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So what's obeying the gospel? Obeying the gospel its hearing and believing this word of truth. And so now what we've done is we've interpreted Peter's words through a Jewish believer 2,000 years ago, looking at those texts, right? And so we understand that our souls are being purified, how? Through believing the gospel of Jesus. Look again at the words now, again, in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So Peter's saying, if you're a believer in the gospel, you've been given a sincere brotherly love. Therefore, what? Love one another earnestly from this pure or this unselfish heart. Now, this leads me to another question that came to mind as I was preparing this week, and that is, What is it about the gospel, about being given a pure heart, that leads me or leads you to love fellow Christians with a sincere brotherly love? In particular, what was Peter trying to get at? Now, I think one way to answer that question is to be reminded that this is a letter to Christians throughout Asia Minor, okay? So it's not a letter written to an individual. A lot of times in our individualistic context, We read the Bible thinking it's just to me, but that's not what this was. This was to a community of Christians, and that affects how we interpret the meaning. Okay, let me illustrate it this way. You know, I can look at one of you, like Scott, I can say, Scott, you have been given new life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I could say that directly to him, and you can listen in, and he can feel the weight of that, thinking, man, that's, wow, I'm really encouraged. So there is an individual significance there. But now if I looked at the entire room and I said, Vine Church, you have been saved, you've been given new life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, upon hearing that news, if you totally like were getting the significance of that, if that totally fell on you with all the weight and meaning of what it meant, I mean it would be fitting for you to high five or to you know just to get excited. Because the reality is If we embrace that truth, it's a shared truth. It it implies a shared identity. It's no longer just a me truth. It's a we truth. And what's interesting is in, in verse 22, Peter implies that this shared identity, this fact that we've all, those all who've trusted in Christ, are now a part of that same shared identity as children of the Father. What it means is that there's this common bond, and that's why he uses the term a sincere brotherly love. Okay, the gospel, it not only creates this sense of shared identity because we all love and have been changed by the same truth, but it's actually made us into family. Okay, so I'm no longer your friend if you're a Christian. I'm your brother, right? We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, this week, Michael McKittrick, he shared a story with me uh, about a friend who was working with gang members in South Chicago. And he had the privilege of seeing two uh, gang mem- members from rival gangs come to the Lord. And uh, But there was a problem. You see, their identity was still rooted in what it meant to be part of that gang. And so they hated each other, Just were, were just incensed with one another. And so, so he sat down with these new believers... And in the attempt to break down this wall of hostility, he asked them this question, who is your father? Who were you saved by in the gospel? And they, and they both acknowledged. They said, yeah, God. God is now our father because we've been saved by Christ in the gospel. Then he said, okay, if you have the same dad, what does that make you? And for them, it was a light bulb moment. Um, to have the same dad means we're brothers and from that moment forward those men who once hated one another were now transformed in their relationship now as you're all aware (laughs) in our country right now there is deep division even among you know in churches in rooms like this there are deep divisions that divide us and I'll be honest I mean it was a frustrating you know political season for me. I was just frustrated a lot by it. And I know I'm not alone in that. But at the end of the day, uh, when, when all this was over, the election was done, and, you know, there's a lot of division, and, and a lot of people are frustrated, and stay away from social media because it's going crazy. You know, but the reality is, I could have easily said, okay, it is what it is, and just moved on. It, it, I could have done that. Um, because the reality is, I'm a middle-class white male. I mean, I'm not feeling super threatened in a very selfish sense about my own sense of resources, right? But in light of 1 Peter 1.22, in light of brotherly love, to which I've been called, I don't have the luxury of being unmoved, right? Of being unmoved by the suffering and pain that so many are experiencing. And because of this, the first thing I did on Wednesday morning after the election, was I called a black friend who is a pastor, Pastor Collier at Zion City Church here in town, and I just wanted to talk to him. I wanted to reach out to him because I know there were some, some indirect statements made throughout this election that, that really highlighted racial divide in our country, and the disparities that exist. And I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to understand what he was feeling. I wanted to enter into that. Similarly, I reached out to a woman who was a victim of sexual assault, and I think we can all agree that this election communicated many different statements about sexual harassment and abuse, and that we look at it more dismissively, perhaps, than we should. And I wanted her to know I cared for her, and she was was deeply in pain. She felt it very personally, and I wanted her to know I cared. And I also sat down with a Hispanic pastor, That week, And I asked him, how is his congregation doing in light of this? And and he told me they were afraid. And I wanted him to know I cared. I I wanted him to know I was concerned about the welfare of his congregation and legitimize the fears that they were feeling. Now, I I know there's an abundance of opinions, you know, anywhere you go regarding how we deal with all the problems that I just mentioned. But it doesn't matter if we're liberal or conservative, black, white, man, woman, whatever, our view or our worldview is if people are hurting, we have an opportunity and a responsibility to, to enter in to understand that hurt. And these actions should be the natural outflow of brotherly love. And this is not only because it's the right thing to do, but because we have a shared identity. We're now brothers and sisters. We're to care for one another, body of Christ. And, and so we've seen that in verse 22. That because we've been purified by the gospel, we are to love one another with sincere brotherly love. And let's, let's move forward. Look at verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So verse 23, it brings us back to this picture that we saw several sermons ago in verse 3, namely that to be saved by the gospel, it's to be born again. The theological word for this is regeneration. Okay, It's being made into something new through our rebirth into the spiritual family. And how is it that we've had this rebirth? Well, verse 2 reads, we've been born again, not of a perishable seed, but through the living and abiding word of God. And verse 24 describes that living word with all of those different word pictures that the flesh is like grass and its glory like the flowers of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord, what? It remains forever forever. I mean, it's giving us this language of the powerful nature of the word of God, a word which not only represents the the entirety of the Holy Scriptures, but it it represents the gospel, that, that narrative of God's saving work. And we see that in verse 25. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So bottom line, Peter wants us to understand that our new life is rooted in the eternal unchanging word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we need to remember, these Christians were persecuted, okay? So they were feeling a lot of pressure on them because of their faith. And it's as though Peter wanted them to understand this, that though they didn't feel safe, though they felt anxious and discouraged, they needed to remember something. They were born again of an imperishable seed that the greater is he who is in them than he who is in the world. And and Peter is suggesting something, that when we understand that we're bound together in this unshakable, imperishable word of God, it gives us this confidence to live and to love in new ways. And we read about this in the next verse. He translates it very clearly for us in verse 1 of chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Because what we see here in that list is is all of these things that are destructive to community, right? Malice is to inflict harm on someone. Deceit is to deceive or lie to a person. Hypocrisy is to appear one way in public but be very different in private. Envy is to long for or to, to lust for someone else's possessions. Slander is to make false or hurtful statements about another person. So there's this theme that emerges from these. All of these are selfish and hurtful behaviors. All of these behaviors destroy community. And and the Greek word for put away that's been translated into those words, it's like removing a garment. So Peter's encouragement for these believers, he said, because of your faith and because your faith is secure, because your faith is in the Lord, your identity is in Christ, begin to take off those selfish garments. because Those things destroy community. Now, one question I wrestled with quite a bit this week as well is, what's the relationship between our being secure in the gospel and our putting off these destructive practices? Well, to answer this, let me just give you an example, okay? What happens when our security isn't in the gospel? Let's, let's, let's look at it that way. Let's consider the topic of money, okay? An interesting topic that we can think about in a few different directions, Okay? So now one way that we, especially here in the West, we find security is in money, okay? And there's some of us, and I've been in this category before, we probably all can relate to it, we love that rush that comes from buying something new, okay? Some people call it shopping therapy, all right? And it's gotten a lot worse, I think, because of credit cards and because of online shopping. It's like, ah, I can just get stuff so easily and so quickly, but, of course, there, there's a problem that arises because when we comfort ourselves by buying things, in our weaker moments, right, we tend to spend ourselves into debt or perhaps take money that should have gone somewhere else. And what do we do with it? We, we put it where it shouldn't have gone, right? And then what do we do? As you think about these lists of sins from 1 Peter 2.1, we're often driven into this place of envy, aren't we? Like, oh, I so want that. And it drives us to these behaviors. And then as we spend our money recklessly, we're tempted to deceit, aren't we, as we lie or hide that behavior from others. There's been several occasions throughout my ministry where troubled marriages have uh, come to me and uh, one spouse had hidden credit cards that racked up tens of thousands of dollars of debt that the other didn't even know about. Several times this has happened, and and this is what I'm talking about. You get into this cycle, and then all of a sudden... What, what was a, a simple slip-up or seemed like a small thing becomes something huge, and you've been, you know, deceit and lie, and man, we've got a lot to work on at that point, right? So that's one side of the, the money issue. Let's think about it from another side, okay, when it comes to the vulnerability of putting our security in money. Now, for those of you on, on the other side of the issue... You may have your three-month emergency fund in place, 10 percent's going to retirement, all the remaining school and house debts being paid down as quickly as possible, and, and that's awesome. Okay? If you're in that place, that's great. I think that's a great testimony of stewardship. But the problem can arise when we're in that position that the control of money keeps us from something. It keeps us from cheerful and sacrificial generosity described in 2 Corinthians 9. And it's not that people who are like that and who are believers in the church, it's not that we don't give, but that our giving is reluctant. It's safe. It's within the margins of what feels comfortable. And from First Peter two, one, this represents a, a subtle form of hypocrisy. As we say that God is our treasure, but we live in such a way that we're overly careful, overly conservative, we're not cheerful and sacrificial you see, by doing this, we're not helping the poor, or we're not advancing God's kingdom as he's called us to. And so there's two sides of this equation in how when our security becomes money, it can be destructive to community. And it doesn't matter if we find our security in the approval of others or comfort or the things that we achieve. All of those behaviors, when those things become ultimate, it leads to malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And so Peter is putting before us something very, very beautiful, really the secret to true community. He's saying that our spiritual birth is, is in the imperishable seed of the gospel. We can rest in that and then be freed to live as God invites us to and to love as God invites us to because we are secure. So we've seen that because we've been purified from the, by the gospel, we love one another with sincere brotherly love. And then we've seen, because we've been born again by an imperishable seed, we put away the behaviors that destroy community and embrace the joy of our rebirth. And this leads to First Peter 2, 2 and 3. Look again at the text. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So Peter, he takes a unique turn here in his line of thinking. He gives us this interesting word picture, doesn't he? This picture of an infant who longs for her mother's milk and that in that longing, she grows up into spiritual maturity or into physical maturity, right? And so Peter's saying that's how our spiritual life's supposed to look. That as people who've been born again, we're like spiritual infants. And what are we to do? We're like infants, we're to long for pure spiritual milk, which is the truth of the gospel revealed in God's word. And as we consume and abide in this gospel word, what happens? We, we grow up into our salvation. We become mature and whole people of God. And what makes this picture even more beautiful is that Peter gives us the motivation for this process. In verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is what motivates us to live this way. And, and Peter is quoting from Psalm 34, which says, "O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You see, in that psalm, the idea, it's very similar to where we've just been in the text, that it's to, it's to remember that God is a refuge and strength. It's to look back and remember all the good things that, that he has done. It's to remember the joy of your salvation. You have tasted good things. And let those good things motivate you to long for more. It's like when you eat a really good dessert, right? And you just can't stop eating it. This is that idea. He's saying, remember how good I've been to you. Remember the joy of your salvation and long for it. Let that motivate you to to want to be in the word, to want to saturate your life in the security that can alone be found through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the picture here is our, our transformation from Selfishness to selflessness is found when our desire for and satisfaction is in God and in His Word and in the gospel. Now, one observation of this principle in, in terms of how we tend to organize our lives is this: uh, this is particularly true of the Western mindset so here you know in North America, very, very true, and that is that we tend to live our lives. With with the divide of the sacred and the secular, okay, we see this when we talk about things like separation of church and state. And this way of thinking, it's pervasive in our culture. We have the sacred and we have the secular. And so, if you can imagine your life as a pie, what this means is that, is that many of us live our lives with a secular part of the pie throughout the week. We have our job—that's one slice. We have family, another slice. Um, we have entertainment—that's another slice. And then, once a week, or maybe a couple times a week, we get to the sacred part of our pie, which is maybe attending a church service or going to a city group. Okay? And, and so we've, we've segmented the way in which we look at our lives. This is secular, and this is sacred. But what I want us to understand is that that is a divide that is completely contrary to the biblical worldview. Amen. Amen. According to First Peter, the entire pie represents your sacred life in the gospel because your father your heavenly father is the motivating desire between behind all that we do so because of this the career slice represents how the gospel and how Jesus Christ informs your understanding of work the relationship slice represents how the gospel informs your approach to relationships The compassion slice represents how the gospel and God and how you've been saved by mercy informs how you help other people. And so what we need to see is that, man, we have tasted and seen that God is good. And once we do that, everything changes. Everything's now to be understood in light of our desire to love and to please God. So we don't live selfishly anymore, right? We're being changed from one degree to another as we... We long for and find our satisfaction in the pure milk of God's word and the gospel. So what we've seen this morning in First Peter is that because we've been purified by the gospel, we love one another with sincere brotherly love. Because we've been born again by an imperishable seed of the gospel, we put away behaviors that destroy community. And because we've been tasted that the Lord is good, we long for more of him, right? This gospel truth, we marinate in it, we soak in it. And because of that, it changes us more and more in how we live and how we love. Now, in the early 70s, okay, I was born in the early 70s, so... Uh, I I learned this later in life. But in the early 70s, President Nixon, uh, one of his senior aides, was a young and successful politician by the name of Chuck Colson. And I know some of you in this room probably know who he is. Some of you don't at all. But I was just reflecting in the midst of, again, politics and all that's going on, on his story. And I just wanted to bring it to you as I wrap up today. You see, those of you who know your history well, you might recall that during Nixon's Second presidential term, there was a Watergate scandal, right, that, that occurred. And, and this scandal ultimately led to President Nixon resigning his post as President of the United States. But one of the most vilified members of his cabinet was senior advisor Chuck Colson. All right? Now now, Colson, with the resignation of Nixon, he was also jobless. And as an attorney, he tried to go out and kind of shake up some Some work, but this cloud of the scandal continued to hang over him. Now, looking back on his life later, Colson would describe his life as this. He said, I had no moral compass. He was consumed by ambition and influence. And so in an attempt to secure some work, he reached out to a CEO of a company named Tom Phillips. Now, Tom had just become a follower of Christ and Phillips and his pastor began to invest in Colson, and they gave him this book by C.S. Lewis. I haven't read it, but it's called The Great Sin. And as the, as the story goes, Colson was in his car and had just read the chapter on pride. And it was right in that moment, he broke down in tears at the wheel of his car, and he, he invited the Lord to forgive him of sin, and he gave his life to him. It was a powerful moment. Now, he later went to court. He was charged with, uh, you know, with crimes based on the Watergate scandal. And it's really interesting. I wasn't aware of this part of the story, but um, the, the evidence against him was very weak, and his legal counsel was very good. And he could have gotten off for that, but he was, as a, as a young believer, young follower of Christ, he, he felt like it was his duty to confess to what he had done. And so against legal counsel, he confessed to his part and his awareness of the scandal. And, and, and so he went to jail for one to three years. And this was a dark season for him, okay? New believer, but he went to jail. And during that time, he didn't receive a presidential pardon, which, was, which could have happened. He was disbarred from practicing law. His father died, and his son was actually incarcerated for using narcotics. Now, despite all of this adversity, Colson kept growing in the Lord. He kept dedicating himself to loving and growing and following him. And so when he got out of jail, what did he do? He started taking his hours, going to the prisons and leading Bible studies for the other inmates. And then inspired by this Christian politician from the past, William Wilberforce, he recognized, man, with all of my life and all of my energy, I want to live for Christ. I want to make a difference. And so for him, that calling meant that he would start up a ministry called Prison Fellowship, and it totally, radically transformed the ministries that were going on in prisons in that time. And so I share that because I want you to see how his life just beautifully illustrates how the gospel of Jesus Christ purifies love. How a love that turned a man wrought from selfish ambition into a man whose purpose was to show brotherly love. A love whose, a, a, a love... that that creates a security in life and created a security in life that was no longer for political influence, right? That wasn't what drove him anymore. It was Jesus. And this love transformed him, right? It gave him an all-consuming love, a love which caused him to say, God, I want to give my life away for the forgotten and marginalized. It's a beautiful story of what it is that Peter wants us to understand today, a story that he desires as well through God's Spirit to write in your life also. So let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. And thanks for this specific word, which reminds us so poignantly, so beautifully, that God, our security is in you. And that the beauty of what it is that you've sown in our life through the gospel is that we have a shared identity. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that shared identity, Lord, I just pray it would sink deep. I know, Lord, that that so many of us live our days riddled with self-doubt, with despair, with anxiety. Lord, and I pray, knowing that I can identify with those feelings this week, Lord, I pray that deep within us there would be a sense of confidence. Not in ourselves, not in our abilities, but in the unchanging Word of God. Lord, just May that resonate with us. And as we love you and long for you more, Lord, we pray that we would be changed from one degree to another to know you and to love you and to love others as you do. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.